0: There are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. the mazel laverne and shirley got canceled and leaving an entire generation of fans eternally wondering what's up with the big ragu Every Breath You Take was released as a single, and David Bowie's Let's Dance hit number one, and 13-year-old Drew loved every goddamn second of it. Reggie Jackson became the first major leaguer to ever strike out 2,000 times, and I'm sure he's glad I'm reminding you of that fact. And finally, in a very real way, part of my childhood came to a close, and we'll talk more about that as we get into this week's films from May of 1983. Hi, everybody, I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome, as always, to 80s All Over, where I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg.
1: Thank you, Drew. Happy to join you for May of 1983. Worth noting, of course, that while Reggie Jackson was the strikeout leader, he was also the home run leader. So there is a lesson or two in that. He said the problem with hitting four home runs in one game is that now they want you to do it every night. So uh, I think that also holds true to filmmakers. Uh, That when you make three or four good movies, uh, if your next one is just decent or not so great, everybody uh, calls it horrible. Well,
0: that's actually a perfect lead in because we're going to get to an event at the end of this month that really was defining for generation. And it's interesting to look at now in context as we watch the fallout from the latest release in this series. So can we just skip every other film and go right to the end? I, I wish we could. I wish we could. I know there's a lot of people that would prefer that we just do that, but uh, I just
1: got a text from Bobby. And he said no. Okay. Fair <laughs> up.
0: So we're going to actually start as we've done the last couple of times by first thanking all of our Patreons and our supporters. As we've said, and as we say every week, you guys really are the reason that the show continues to build momentum.
1: We got like 15 new patrons in the last two weeks and the three three of us 5 minutes ago we're talking about how freaking grateful we are for every person out there who not only listens but throws us a few bucks and enjoys the bonus episode so on behalf of the whole show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is something
0: that, when we can do this, I like doing it. Uh, just talk a little bit about uh, some of the re-releases that were happening in theaters this month. And it's weird because it really feels like it was just a greatest hits from the year before. Can you imagine if May was nothing but re-releases of Rocky 3 and Friday the 13th 3 and Poltergeist and Porky's? And it's it really does feel like it's just, hey, let's warm you up for summer. You like this stuff last summer. Uh, this is kind of what summer's like. Let's go. And now, with like Avengers is coming out and what is it, April twenty seventh? I don't even know what studios consider summer anymore.
1: The studios saw the writing on the wall as far as like rentals and whatnot, and they thought oh, man, this re-release market is not going to be what it used to be in a year or two. Let's try and squeeze a couple more re-releases in this summer before people can rent all these movies readily on VHS.
0: It's clearly it was aimed at our age group. It was really young movies or what they were re-releasing. And I think they saw that as just they're already in theaters. They're there every Friday and Saturday night. Let's just get something there that they like already.
1: Right. Plus, there's a, kind of an alien concept to today's movie geek. If, if it played a year ago and you happen to not see it, Guess what? Now you can go see it. And I bet you there were a lot of kids our age who went, oh, I totally miss Poltergeist. And they ran out and saw it. And then, oh, God, can you imagine how many people saw
0: Porky's the second time around because their older brothers got them in or because they'd heard enough that they like
1: figured out a way or they just happened to hit 17 in the interfeeding <laughs> years? As we go to future summers, we're going to see less re-releases because even though it is kind of low overhead, you still have to spend money to re-release a film. This is kind of like the last hurrah of, let's say, the quickie re-release.
0: I think you're right. And and definitely by this point, I already had a VCR and I was starting to get really into collecting movies and copying movies. Pardon me, MPAA. Just having as big a collection as I could have. So I think it was already cutting into the idea of going back to see something repeatedly on the big screen.
1: Drew, could we go back to something you said a minute ago? Sure. It was something like, I was right. You said something to that effect. (laughs) I did. I said that. I said you were right. Mm. Another reason that I think this might be such a a re-release heavy month, and this is where I segue into the main section, is that this is a relatively skimpy month as far as brand new releases are concerned. And maybe uh, the studio saw – That there were some holes in that schedule and it's like, all right, let's throw Rocky three in there.
0: You look at what our 11 titles are this month and uh, it is not
1: a terribly big lineup. Right. So in order to pad this episode out to normal length, what we're going to do is I have uh, 15 minutes of our our producer tap dancing, not video, just audio. And (laughs) we're going to throw that right in here before we dig into. One of the worst movies I think that Paramount has ever released, and I say this as a fan of the stars and as a fan of their lifestyle, I got no frickin' usage out of Cheech and Chong's Still Smokin'. At last, a movie with significant social importance. Yeah, I was there during the 60s when the universe meant something. Down-to-earth characters and a deep personal message. It's Cheech and Chong. Crazy. Joking. No witch fungus mungus. And still smoking. Still smoking. Rated
0: R. We've locked horns about Cheech and Chong here on a couple of their films. Um, I still say Nice Dreams is better than you give it credit for. Still Smoking is not better than you give it credit for. It may be worse than you give it credit for. Scott, this movie features blackface
1: twice. Twice! It literally looks like they got an invitation to the Amsterdam Film Festival and went. Let's get a small crew, and we'll film it, and this will be what we release as a feature film. I think
0: it's more cynical than that. I think they had one more film on their Paramount deal, and so they took a drawer with all their old shitty sketches that never got produced, and a few of them from their live show that they went, eh, why don't we just get it on film finally? And they threw that together. It is an odds-and-ends drawer of a movie, and it is full of things that are just as witty as... Fags in Space, which is an actual segment in the film. That's the level of wit you're dealing with across the board in this film. The running joke throughout the movie that everybody has mistaken them for Burt Reynolds and Dolly Parton is supposed to be hilarious. I don't get that joke. I don't get it. It's not hilarious. It doesn't work. It's not a funny ongoing gag. Is the joke that the, the, the
1: Dutch are stupid?
0: Is that the joke? Well, the joke is that that was who was supposed to be there. People just suck up to famous people. So they say whatever the famous person says, I guess. Yeah, that's right. They're inviting. I don't even think it's that smart a joke. I think it's just it's funny. They call me Burt Reynolds and they call you
1: Dolly Barton. You can almost sense the see them in the editing room going, all right, we got 43 minutes of us on stage doing just terrible shtick. If this is the stuff that they were doing in 1976, they would not have gotten up in smoke. That's how bad this material is. I think some of it is, though. I think it literally is like a greatest hits of some
0: of their old live shit that they did on the road. Because the crazy thing about their story is I don't know how they got famous. I really don't. Their act was a crazy sort of accidental nightmare that started in bars and Backwoods, Canada, of all places. And when you listen to Chong tell the story, or you listen to Cheech talk about those early days, they would do anything on stage. The Dogs is a very famous bit of theirs. And seeing it finally immortalized on film here, are you kidding me? that's
1: what they got famous doing? It blows me away, and I love Cheech and Chong's early films. Individually and together, they can both be very funny and even very good actors with the right material, and even to this day, I love the guys, but this is almost a movie, and I could forgive that if it was funny. There's a 10-minute segment where... Cheech
0: says, "Wouldn't it be funny if it was ET the extra testicle, and then he wears a jumpsuit
1: and chases women around for fifteen minutes?" Going meet 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 And meep, as meep. a kid, nope. As a kid, I thought that was you know slightly funny, like oh, it's you know a grown man acting like a fucking idiot. If you're a Cheech and Chong fan, avoid it. You
0: can sum it up in saying that the title of the film does not refer to marijuana usage; it refers to a piece of
1: shit. And I think that pretty much nails it. We are going to get to at least one more Chichin Chong effort, Drew. And as bad as Still Smoking is, I think it might be better than the Corsican Brothers. We'll see.
0: I have not seen that in a long time. So we will see. This next one, this was a theatrical release in uh, 1983 in May at the, the prime summer season. Chained Heat.
1: Caged Passions. for many years i mistook i had not mistook transformed this one with what film drew caged heat caged heat by the late great jonathan demme which might be the best women in prison movie ever because it has a very firm tongue-in-cheek approach to the camp and that satirized This stuff twelve years before this came out. It's directed by a guy named Paul Nicholas, whose directorial debut came out in March
0: of 1983 in Germany, and then in April of 1983 he's got his first American film. And boy, what a debut! It feels like a porno film that they tricked big stars into appearing in, and then they cut all the porno. You gotta love a movie where the warden of the prison has in his actual prison office. A hot tub. A hot tub and a bed. That's a move.
1: What warden needs a hot tub and a bed? Maybe a Well, John
0: Vernon does, of course. What I like is, I like thinking that this is, because he starts the movie filming a girl that he's having sex with. I like imagining that this is the director from Curtains. This is his next gig, because he couldn't get a job making movies anymore.
1: What, what might be fun is that if you watch uh, Chained Heat as a pseudo-sequel to Animal House to see what happened to Dean Wormer after he got fired from the car There you go. This is a piece of garbage, but... If you are an aficionado of garbage, this movie is chock full of colorful, nasty, weird shit with a really interesting cast. Dude, it's Linda Blair
0: and Sybil Danning and Tamra Dobson. And Tamara Dobson, that's a big one.
1: Stella Stevens? How about Henry Silva?
0: Yeah, Henry Silva. Yeah,
1: Cleopatra yeah. Jones.
0: It's a who's who, basically, if you're an exploitation fan. Some of these movies, I get the sort of sleazy kick of them. I think this one tries at the beginning to kind of be that sleazy kick, and then it just goes on too long. It takes forever
1: with all the plot mechanics. Part of me is watching this movie, and I'm thinking, oh, this is repulsive. How, how could they?
0: A lot of ugly shit in this movie. It's a women in prison film, and an unapologetic one. As somebody who came of age in the 80s, this one was one of those movies that... Uh, A lot of my interests intersected in this film. Uh, There's Russ Meyer cast members and Cleopatra Jones. um, And this is the last big film for Tamara Dobson, which is kind of a shame. She really did not have a long career. Man, she was powerful on screen. And I do. I miss her. I thought she was pretty terrific in these these types of films.
1: There are dozens of these movies that date back to the 1940s. Women in prison subgenre is a lot bigger than I thought. And I'm not really a genre that I really feel like dipping my toe into too often. But if you want a a heaping side order of sleaze. Can
0: you imagine the afternoons like John Vernon and Henry Silva had on set where they were just chatting about other things they'd done while this movie's happening around them?
1: Yeah. And and, (laughs) I, I guess what might be fun is to watch Chained Heat and then watch Caged Heat second and get, like, the the references and the humor and then realize that the satirical one was made over 10 years earlier.
0: Uh, we've got a couple of other films this week that I feel like one plays, like, the really low-rent, super shitty version of the other, and it's not saying the other's any good. But first up, I don't know what to say about Mausoleum.
1: Centuries ago, they laid
0: it to rest. It has just awakened something so monstrous so evil that nothing may deny its unearthly earthly cravings. Centuries of evil have just awakened inside the mausoleum. Right it
1: on. For many, many years, I got this film and mortuary confused.
0: Understandably, because the artwork is almost identical and the posters were probably right next to each other
1: on shelves. Same and- year. They both start with, I believe, the letter M. Uh, and in a way, they're kind of... <laughs> <laughs> mausoleum and mortuary. They go together like milk and I don't know. Uh, this thing took me four sittings to get through, Drew. I was like, I can watch it in four 20 minute drops.
0: This is sub primitive. This is like somebody watched Phantasm and said, Hey, let's do that. But
1: badly and out of focus, bad special effects. Although this film has one thing, one name of notable reference on there. Drew, who is it? I am shocked by Marjo Gortner
0: being in it. I am Absolutely thrilled every time Fred Sanford's cousin shows up in the movie.
1: I was referring to FX genius, John Carl Beekler, who would go on to much, much better things. There is a lot of gore in this movie.
0: Really, like Marshall Gortner, for those of you who don't know him, Marshall Gortner was a child preacher who uh, was famous on the Southern Circuit. Then when he was in his late teens, 20s, Made a documentary in which he finally admitted, oh, no, this is all bullshit. So is all of evangelism. This whole thing is a scam. Let me show you how it works. That documentary is amazing if you ever track it down and see it. But then he became a character actor in shitty exploitation films. This is one of those movies where you're like, really, dude, you got out of the lucrative and I presume really easy gig of televangelism
1: to make mausoleum i'm not sure he traded up did i accidentally smoke angel dust or does this woman not only turn into a demon but each of her individual breasts also turn into a demon yes no that actually does happen that does happen yeah there were times during mausoleum where i i thought the director of this film is trying to emulate the nonsensical nature of giallo films well, I have some kills and I have some characters, but I don't have much else, so the rest will all be a little bit avant-garde and hallucinogenic.
0: You put your finger on it recently when you were talking about the fact that you can't use nightmare logic as an excuse for poor filmmaking. I would argue that all you need to really put the horribly shoddy filmmaking a mausoleum in focus is to watch our next film, which is probably best known in the States by the title The Gates of Hell. city of the dead, the living dead, a
1: cursed city where the gates of hell have been opened. It had like the typical exploitation disclaimer. No one under 17 will be admitted to this film.
0: Uh, Honestly, it has one of the gore moments I remember most from theatrical.
1: We'll get there. Uh, uh, This movie is best known as City of the Living Dead. Aside from Zombie, a.k.a. Zombie from Fulci, this might be my favorite film of his, even though in many ways it is just as much of a mess as his other stuff. But man, it has some shocks, including one or two gore scenes that are absolutely infamous, thanks to a horrifying poster in Fangoria.
0: I did not see the Fango poster. I did not see anything. I didn't know what it was. I saw this at the theater that my friend's brother worked at as a usher, and he would just let us walk theater to theater, and we could watch whatever we wanted. And so we walked into Gates of Hell, and I had no idea what was going on. And then the scene in the car happened. And that was one of those moments where I'm like, okay, I don't know what's happening. I I don't even know what this movie is, but this isn't a movie theater. That's a real thing. That's –
1: oh my god. The movie has your typical shocking – I mean it's basically about a town called Dunwich, Natch, that gets invaded by, of course, zombies. And a priest kills himself to open a door to hell. Oh yeah, all that. None of that stuff is even necessary at all. Although <laughs> the first act is completely superfluous. But there's a scene where a woman is in a car, and I believe to indicate the coming of the uh, well, apocalypse, she leans over in her car and vomits up her own intestines. They were also sheep intestines, which led me as a kid to think, how much did they have to pay this woman to stick a glob? <laughs> of sheep intestines into her mouth. It is the worst thing ever. <laughs> and, and it just seems like, because it it's almost apropos of nothing, which is, you know, par for the course in a Fulci, but it almost feels like they said, what if we just ask somebody to spit intestines out of her mouth? And it became the most famous scene in the movie.
0: Uh, we just talked about The Beyond, and these films tend to either hit me or not hit me just based on the overall vibe of that movie. And The Beyond, I'm not crazy about, I kind of like The Gates of Hell, and it's one of those where it is no better story-wise. It's a movie where you can just watch it. It doesn't have to make any sense, and it does coast on the best of its most extreme insane, I can't believe I just saw that moment. This last, uh, I guess we're going to do a horror block here, and this last one is a movie that Shout Factory rescued from obscurity because there really weren't even film elements to put a, a home video release of this together. They used private collector's prints in order to save it, and I am not sure the final terror is worth the effort.
1: The legend is told in whispers and unknown tale of an unknown force alien to this world. You don't know what you're dealing with, lady. Without knowing, they have awakened a terrifying evil. We wanna get out of here! Alone and unprotected, now comes the naked horror. See the final terror. Rated on. Now showing at a theater near you. The final terror! All right, now there's a lot to unpack here because this is a pretty freaking dull, bad slasher movie. With an unreal cast, yes, there. But there is so much to like. If you are a, and God bless Shout Factory. I'm sorry that I don't like this movie, but their their release is fantastic. If you are a collector of these, some are good, some are not. I think this one falls in the latter camp. But boy, they treat it this, this movie like it's The Exorcist. This is the debut, I believe, of Andrew Davis, who later in the decade would give us Code of Silence and Above the Law. And then he would move on to The Package, Under Siege, The Fugitive, and a whole bunch of crap. This has Daryl Hannah. You, you can do the next one. Uh, Adrian Zamed. Why would you choose Adrian Zamed? <laughs> Our average listener has no fucking idea. Rachel Ward? There you go. Rachel, you know what? No, they don't even know who Rachel, I'm just kidding. But no, if you're like under 25, would you know who Rachel Ward is? All right, Joey Pants. Joey Panigliano from hundreds of movies, most probably best from The Matrix. uh, But he is one of the premier character actors, not only of the 80s, but beyond. And this is, even in this junk pile, he stands out. Most of his dialogue is tiresome and and silly, but he's one of the only people in this movie who, like, actually leaves an impression.
0: He's got the Dwight Fry character here. He's got to play the guy who's, like, over the top and warning everybody about what's going to happen. And it's funny that we had John Vernon in a horror film this month, Uh, another Animal House uh, alumni, Mark Metcalfe here the head of the program who kind of takes these young people into the woods. Animal House did not do much for everybody's career. Like, when you look at the guys from Animal House that we've been covering, you know, Peter Riegert and Local Heroes, probably the, the best case scenario, but McGill wasn't tough enough, and you've got Mark McAlfier and Vernon kind of doing what Vernon's doing. I could think of at least one person who blew up post-Animal House. But you would think, like, it, if there was a movie that was the size of Animal House today,
1: you would think that people would really – everybody would get the bounce well, out of it. You, it would make sense that if, when we talk about um, American graffiti, Days and Confused, uh, you know, it, it would make sense if Animal House was in that conversation. It's not for lack of talent, because there's a lot of really talented people in Animal House, but the only person who really blew up post-Animal House was, of course, Kevin Bacon.
0: Yeah, it's weird, man. It, it was a real low rent uh, filmography for a lot of people after that movie.
1: Drew, some of the names on the credits of this film, Sam Arkoff, Joe Roth, <laughs> dude
0: think- joe roth and it's funny because we have a dan o'bannon film this month and we also have a ronald schussett film this month
1: co-written by ron Shusett of alien are you kidding you would never know it looking at the film i was so pulling for this mo- movie i was just i remembered virtually none of it uh you know just be half decent i could see what you're going for half slasher half survival horror i get that all right you're trying a little bit of both samples. all right i'm down but it's just so dull And it has one of my biggest issues in in slasher movies. You don't have many rules, but I don't understand how after somebody is killed, two scenes later, people are just chatting away. Nobody seems very upset. There's not any... Katie, my friend of 10 years, is now dead in a ditch. None of that. We we
0: talked about mausoleum here, and I don't think that guy has any feel for the genre. I don't think Andrew Davis is... You look at the rest of his filmography, clearly horror is not where his heart is. I think that's part of it. They aren't invested. So they're going through the motions. They're like, okay, there's a kill here, and then we have we have to kill some time. And then we have to, So they're not invested in it like this is really happening to these people. The, the movies that we love, the ones that really stick with us, the ones where at some point... You're in that situation. You're feeling what those people are feeling. And for that to happen, the filmmakers
1: have to, on some level, commit. Uh, This film was uh, reportedly shot in 81 and then shelved. Nobody really wanted it. And then once a handful of the stars got bigger names like Daryl Hannah, then it was purchased and released. It is somewhat nicely shot in the daylight. It's shot in Redwood National Park. Considering that Blu-ray
0: was put together from existing prints and not from a negative, it's a phenomenal looking print. If you do like The Final Terror, man, are you in luck because it has been taken care of. This next film we're covering because it represents a landmark for a company that has gone on to be a huge cultural force and It was briefly released in the U.S., but it is largely a television movie. It appears to have any cursory like, hey, we made a movie kind of release uh, through Fox. But this is HBO's first feature film. And as such, it's worth a quick mention. So we're going to talk a little bit now about the Terry Fox story. Boring. I remember when people made fun of what an HBO movie was because they were super earnest and super dry, and they were just not good movies. This is one of those movies that gave them that reputation in the first place.
1: The Terry Fox story is, of course, based on the tragic story of a young man named Terry Fox who died at 22. He did run across Canada with one leg and cancer. He is a hero uh, in many regards, and he deserves to be remembered very fondly.
0: Oh, the real Terry Fox is a terrific person who I have nothing but good things to say about. That's not this movie, though.
1: Yeah, the film is reminds me a little bit of what Drew said about Gandhi, which is you're know, like just kind of telling the story about Terry Fox. You're not telling Terry Fox's story. Here's the thing. We almost never
0: get Chris Makepeace movies. There's so few of them. So anytime he shows up, I'm automatically hoping at the very least I'll get a great Chris Makepeace performance out of it. Nope.
1: What I like about this film uh, is the small but notable uh, boost given by the great Robert Duvall. Man, in his every scene, tries to elevate this thing beyond the typical tearjerker that it plainly is. Won all kinds of genies, which is the Canadian Oscar. Uh, So, you know, good for them. I don't begrudge them that, but it is just kind of very, very basic. And now, speaking of that
0: Dan O'Bannon film, what what movie was it that he co-wrote this month, Scott? it's called
1: blue thunder the military let police officer frank murphy in on their secret weapon i thought it was illegal to arm police helicopters they made him part of the plan do you think you can fly it you flew it didn't you they wanted him to follow orders we turn a face so we're gonna open fire he wanted to follow his conscience so i want you to pick up a package for me don't stop for anything or anybody but will they let him live to do that roy scheider blue thunder the ultimate weapon rated r
0: This is the first of John Madden's two big 1983 films. This was also a uh, what I refer to as a dad movie. My dad loved this movie. Uh, It was on the same list as stuff like Nighthawks, where if I just wanted to watch something and I knew that he was going to be in the room, it would have to come off a
1: certain stack. This was on that stack. So I saw Blue Thunder a lot. I bet Uncommon Valor was on that stack. Oh, yeah, it was. Oh, that's a lot of pudding, baby. Um, John Badham, he did uh, the Dracula reboot in '79 with Frank Langella, which is pretty damn good. Obviously, before that, he did Saturday Night Fever. But the dude would turn out to be a remarkably consistent director for quite a while, and we'll get to him later in the uh, in different episodes. John Badham was a really consistent director and uh, knew how to do a popcorn movie. And I remember as a kid, this and Firefox. I just thought they were kind of the same movie, both kind of boring. And then I revisit it for the show. And for the first 15, 20 minutes, I felt kind of vindicated. Like, yeah, it's very standard cop stuff. But then Malcolm McDowell shows up and this ultra high tech Blue Thunder helicopter shows up. And it really does get kind of twisted. You know, it it gets a little bit funky. I like it. I like Blue Thunder. I think it's fun.
0: He was making this for Columbia. At the time, they were gearing up to make war games as well. When Martin Brest fell apart on war games in the beginning, he was just wrapping this, so that 's why he stepped in on war games, and so he ended up having these movies come out almost back to back. This is really what launched him into the rest of his career because as big as Saturday Night Fever was as big as Dracula was, these feel more like the movies he ended up making for the rest of his career, which is sort of big studio. Kind of thrillers, kind of funny, kind of character, but a little high concept-y. There was this sweet spot that he seemed to like, and this film feels like it's right there. Yeah,
1: it feels very mainstream, just a little idiosyncratic here and there to keep it from being just another episode of Hail Street Blues. But uh, Roy Scheider plays the helicopter pilot for the LAPD. He has a new partner in a a very good Daniel Stern. As the Jaffo. As the J-A-F-O, these guys uh, are tasked with uh, patrolling the city.
0: That lady that does yoga, if you see this movie on Blu-ray, that that is borderline NC-17. I,
1: I was, I thought she had like a body stocking on. I really nope. didn't. Nope. Nope. Uh, nope. Yep. Yep. Then they are uh, offered the chance to test out Blue Thunder, which was designed by the evil Malcolm McDowell. Roy Scheider discovers that there is a a cover-up afoot, and he uses his newfound technological prowess to take down the bad guys. Act three of this movie has some of the, like, how did they shoot that practically kind of moments. And
0: this kicked off like a little mini craze. Not only was there a TV show version of this with Dana Carvey playing the Daniel Stern role, there was also Airwolf, which we've discussed.
1: Now, was there ever an episode of Airwolf? In, w- in which they dealt with a werewolf. They call it airwolf lycanthrope. No. Right.
0: Um... <laughs> I, I'm quitting Bobby Bobby just uh, mm. just just put in some, you know some what, old Nick, stuff you're a diamond I said here dozen, and uh, I can
1: find a Cargill to replace you <laughs> I don't you would never do that to me um but no I was uh, watching this movie and as I was really digging act two into the turn of act three and he's like kind of a contained thriller where he's trying to do all these things in the course of one day to prevent the bad guys and it gets really fun
0: And it's fun having Candy Clark in the middle of there. I like Candy Clark. There's not enough Candy Clark movies, so I like having her as Roy Scheider's
1: girlfriend and uh, uh, sort of co-conspirator here. Also, we have to send out some love to the late great Warren Oates. This, uh, unless you count Tough Enough, which apparently opened prior to this and then opened again later in in platform release. But as far as I'm concerned, this is Warren Oates' final film. Just a wonderful character actor. Just a great voice. I love Warren Oates. Rest in peace.
0: Also, uh, you cannot overstate how good Roy Scheider is at part of this is because Jaws started this. Smile, you son of a bitch. Obviously, action movies in the 80s really got good at those lines, and dudes had to say that after they killed everybody. Scheider throws one away here and he makes it
1: work so well. Oh, uh, what contemporary actor would you say is Roy Scheider-esque?
0: I don't know, man. I don't know if there is anybody quite like him now. I can't m- That's kind of what I asked, you know? I think only the only guy that I can picture having the range to play both something like Blue Thunder and something like Sorcerer and also do all that jazz that we have right now is maybe give him 15 years and let's see where Hugh Jackman lands.
1: I love Roy Scheider. Rest in peace to him as well. You just that face and that voice. There's something about him. that's So special. And now uh, we'll move on to another movie star vehicle that is terrible. It is a remake of a French film and they're both called Breathless. Honey, let me, me. Oh, my round and round. And me around you, me, you me. Be, Richard Gere? Breathless, Breathless rated R, up. starts Friday at a theater near you.
0: I don't even have to go look this up. Of course, Quentin Tarantino loves this movie. Yes, there is a connection that has been established in interviews, but all you have to do is look at how obsessed Richard Gere is with the silver surfer in this movie and then go look at Reservoir Dogs and Tim Roth's apartment. And clearly this movie is in Quentin Tarantino bouncing around like a bullet that got fired into him.
1: But that's that's one of the things that we talk about on this show so much is I could see thinking Richard Gere in Breathless is super cool when I was 16. There's nothing about this character that I like and and not even that what's death to the film is there's nothing about this character I empathize with. He's a cop killer and we're supposed to travel along with him for one wild weekend or whatever while he avoids the cops and romances this beautiful French woman who is played by one of the worst actresses I've ever seen in my life. This film is interminable. I was stunned that it was made by Jim McBride who would go on to uh, Big Easy And not quite as good, but Great Balls of Fire. I love The Big Easy. This movie, if I wasn't doing this podcast, I would have shut this off and shrieked into the night like a werewolf who just got castrated. I kind of enjoyed parts of it. This is a
0: very weird take on what a remake is because it's not a remake. Not really. This is. It's a flip. It's a reflip. Explain how it's a flip. Well, it's clearly what it was, was when Godard made Breathless. What Godard was doing was responding to sort of American pop culture and things that had been adapted as cool. And it was all about how this main character in his film, he was living out a gangster movie. And at one point in this film, they literally go have sex behind a screen that's showing the gangster movie that is clearly the inspiration for Goddard's Breathless. So there's this cannibalistic, it's not just he's reacting to Goddard, but he's also reacting to the films that Goddard reacted to, but he's trying to do it in American pop 83 language as opposed to French pop 60s language. So he's wrapping it in American comic books and he's wrapping it in Jerry Lee Lewis instead of the stuff that Godard wrapped it in.
1: And what is it with uh, Jim McBride and Jerry Lee Lewis? Let it go, dude. Good God.
0: But Scott, here's where nostalgia and where you know the culture that you grew up with is important because to McBride, Jerry Lee Lewis is what gear talks about him as he is this representation of he was the wild man of rock and roll. He was the lunatic that didn't give a shit. He was a pedophile.
1: Pedophile.
0: Jim McBride grew up in the 50s when Jerry Lee Lewis was a rock and roll icon. You're reacting to him as a guy in 2018 who has all the information. Even when
1: he made Great Bells of Fire in 1988, he deifies him in that movie.
0: Because he's wrestling with somebody that he clearly was hugely influenced by. We're going to have a conversation later this episode uh, about uh, something that we both have wrestled with for months getting ready for this episode. Because we grew up with somebody. It feels to me like this is... It's honest in terms of these are the things that are important to McBride, and this is the pop culture that he is obsessed with and infatuated with. And the Silver Surfer thing feels genuine.
1: No, it doesn't. It all feels like minutia. That's what the original is.
0: I Honestly, Godard's film is is as transitive and as built on pop culture and as of the moment as the 83 one is. And that's kind of what Goddard was doing, was he was trying to make a youth film in the language of youth. But I think this is as honest a reaction to Goddard's film, and I think it is jim mcbride literally trying to throw the ball back like he caught the pass and he's like cool i get what you're doing now here's my shot at it. all right it. fair and enough i don't think it works i also don't think breathless is the kind of thing that deserves a remake i i think it is a strange idea to try to come back to that material but i think it is a honest attempt and an honest failure before we continue i have to agree with you valerie Kaprisky who Jim McBride photographs beautifully in this movie, who could not act like she was in pain if we pushed her off a building.
1: Yeah, in her defense... You know, we kind of did the same thing for Jessica Lange. She has, between television and film, uh, voluminous credits in France. So I can only assume that this was her at her early uh, ages. Um, Jim McBride did her no favors. And part of the problem
0: is that he is completely infatuated with Richard Gere, who at this point in his career kind of had a shtick that he did, which was, I have ADD and I'm going to show my penis.
1: I think a movie like this is why Richard Gere spent most of his career being stoic and dry, because when he's goofy, he's creepy. Uh, I did not expect that Breathless would cause such an interesting discussion between Drew and I. I thought we would save our debates for Dr. Detroit.
0: You mean Dan Aykroyd's The Nutty Professor? is a style
1: setter, a power walker, a Kentucky colonel, Step aside Dear, you'll a learned professor, a kung fu expert, and a disco sensation, all to protect four lovely ladies. Oh, yeah! Preserve equal justice and promote general fun. Let's party! See Dan Aykroyd and Dr. Yeah. Dr. Detroit. This is the best time I've ever had in my entire life! Rated R. Make an appointment to see The Doctor Friday at a theater near you. Can we try an experiment? Sure. I'm going to be you, and you're going to be me as we review this film. Hmm, okay. All right. All right. Growing up as a Saturday Night Live aficionado, I could not wait to see Dan Aykroyd in his first starring role, and even as a (laughs) 14-year-old, I could tell that this film was turgid. Yes, I said turgid. My intelligent friend, Scott Weinberg, taught me that word. He teaches me things all the time. He's great. My sister took me to see this at the theater with her, and we had to pretend we were going to see Yellowbeard. So we went to see Dr. Detroit,
0: and I remember there were a lot of boobs, so it was uncomfortable. And uh, Dan Aykroyd in this, um, I don't like pimps, uh, the end.
1: Do I, I don't really sound like that. Now I'm no. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, all right. No. I, I think we probably both have very similar stories on this. We both and our 14-year-old friends love this movie. We thought that it was – we were supposed to find this type of stuff hilarious. And uh, we like the idea that it ended with coming soon, Dr. Detroit 2, The Wrath of Mom. And maybe the Devo song at the beginning.
0: I think you're a little more generous than I was. I I bounced off this film like a wall. I hated this film when I saw it. And I am not kidding when I say I think it is his take on Nutty Professor.
1: It is. It absolutely
0: is. But with Nutty Professor, there's a thing that he takes. There's a thing that he does that makes him switch over. There's no motivation here other than he's given
1: a chance to be a pimp. And he goes, yeah, okay." If you walked into a college and you just grabbed a a thirty five. year old college professor and said, you're going to be a pimp. Now you would be escorted out of there. Anyway, that's the premise. He is a, a stuck up stuffy college professor because Howard Hessman makes trouble. The great, awesome Howard Hessman. He now has to pose as a pimp, Otherwise, these four women uh, will be in big, fat trouble. So what he's doing is acting as their pimp uh, as a noble gesture.
0: Hey, Scott, I was just listening to your synopsis for this. I wonder if there's a scene in this movie where Dan Aykroyd's character tells the woman that he has fallen in love with that
1: she's just a whore. And it paid off, too, because he ended up. I wonder if there's a scene like that, because that'd be really bold and different. The scene where they kind of seduce him. It's just what am I watching here? Like, this is. Gross. This movie seems to think that Dan Aykroyd dancing
0: is the single funniest thing you can ever point a camera at because they let him
1: dance a lot. I will not disrespect Dan Aykroyd on the whole. I know he's a weird guy and I know he's done some terrible films, but I think as a character actor and as a supporting player and as a comedian, I think he's fantastic. As a leading man in this kind of sex comedy,
0: fuck no. Part of the problem is that you have Bruce J. Friedman, one of the writers here, who – Friedman was hot shit at the time. Friedman was the guy that wrote Stir Crazy. He wrote The Heartbreak Kid. He wrote The Lonely Guy in Splash after this. You had Carl Gottlieb wrote on this thing. This had a lot of weight thrown at it before Aykroyd really came on. So it's a script that had been bouncing around. I can't imagine what he saw in it except like, okay, I can play the pimp version. It will be this big, wacky character, and then I get to do my really stuffy white guy which he then repurposed a month later for a film that finally was
1: his first big breakout away from Belushi. The Ladies of the Night, as we'll say, are played by Donna Dixon, Lydia Lee, Lynn Whitfield, and Fran Drescher. All four of them have cursory punchlines and are given little bits to do, but... Basically, it's supposed to be, I'm Dan Aykroyd, get out of my way. Also, one of my other favorite character actors, T.K. Carter of The Thing, is in this film.
0: And the one interesting thing in this that I kind of wish this movie had had the balls to really go whole hog in is Howard Hessman is the pimp who creates a guy that is calling the shots that he can hide behind so that he can disappear. And then he has uh, Dan Aykroyd step in and play this guy. So. The person who's really been running the show isn't Howard Hessman. It's T.K. Carter's assistant. And the moment Hessman's gone, T.K. Carter should be the one that steps up and takes over and starts running things. But they need a face that mom will work with. And so that's why they create the, the other white guy. And you see T.K. Carter's character constantly chafing at the notion that nobody considers him credible as the person to run everything. There's a more interesting version of this film that's about that tension between him and the white guy that comes in to become a wacky pimp.
1: I counter that statement. I don't think there is a better version of this film. And then...
0: (laughs) I, I, I wish this movie was funny because it has a lot of t- – and I was really looking forward to this revisit as maybe I'll learn to love Dr. Detroit or at least like it this time, and I really don't.
1: It's the opposite. I was dreading it because I knew that it was the pinnacle of 1983 fashion, trash, flashy, junky, garish, ugly, whatever. But now we're going to move into something that is uh, similarly both very funny and very not funny. So let us briefly discuss Bill Cosby himself. It's not a dessert. It's not a soft drink. And it's not a computer. It's the all-new, all-star comedy spectacular starring Bill Cosby himself. Hi, Mom. Original motion picture soundtrack available on Motown Records and Tapes.
0: Let's get this out of the way up front. It's hard to have any conversation about Bill Cosby at this point. It's his fault. Trying to rewatch this film for the first time in a long time and watch it with, with you know, the same impartial eyes that I watch everything is next to impossible now.
1: When I was growing up, my parents had five or six uh, Bill Cosby albums. There was um, to Russell, my brother, whom I slept with. Why is there air? My sister and I listened to those albums probably a 100 times in our childhood. Movie wise, Bill Cosby wasn't all that reliable, but we were addicted to those albums and his television show and this concert film. I grew up in love with Bill Cosby. And if he hadn't spent so many years doing so many horrible things, he would still be considered well, this, uh, one of the I best people part of in the, the world. The reason that the conversation is so
0: difficult is because of what this film sort of kicked off. And this is ground zero for the Cosby show. This is where he was reinventing himself because I think a lot of people forget or they only know later Eric Cosby, they forget that he was kind of a hit motherfucker in the 70s like, he had the Jazz Festival. He was making movies with guys like Sidney Potier and Walter Hill. His albums like, that you talked about were very probably the biggest stand-up albums being released. They were huge. And they look back at Childhood with this sort of rowdy voice. And even the Cosby Kid cartoons weren't like anything else that was on Saturday morning. Oh,
1: Fat Albert. I,
0: they were terrific. And they were different. And
1: they felt real. If, if you were to brainwash children into loving someone intentionally – Like, you couldn't train children to love a person. But it wasn't just children. That's the thing. He had an
0: adult career before this. This was that moment where he stopped really being that and started talking about Parenthood, and this is where he became America's dad. It's difficult
1: to watch. I truly believe it is a fantastic concert film.
0: It might be one of the best concert
1: films ever shot. It's certainly one of the most important in terms of what other people did afterwards. I absolutely believe this is a man, maybe a comedian at the top of his game. The man is wildly talented as a writer and a performer. And throughout the entire experience, all I could think oh, after this show, did he go rape someone? It's not my fault if you've stained your career. If I see O.J. Simpson pop up in a film, I think of murder. And you know what? I don't want to think of murder. and I don't want to think of rape while I'm watching a comedy show. And it does deserve its place in history as a great stand-up concert. If nobody ever watched it again, I could completely understand that.
0: The only bit here that I don't think is aged well is the dentist bit at the beginning. And I think it's because every hack comic has done dentist material and it's become endlessly diluted. Jesus Christ, it seems like it goes on forever at the beginning of
1: the set. Yeah, well, I think I think he likes that bit because he's good at voice.
0: He gets to do his
1: remember. yeah if you just judge his material about being a parent.
0: That's what the heart of this thing is. It's the stuff about childbirth and child rearing and the chaos of family. And he directed this film as well. There is a terrific use of a very spare set where it's just a colored background. But the way he times those bursts of color and the shifts from light to dark are so precision that I truly believe, like, as a stand-up comic, if you just want to learn your craft, you go back and you watch this thing. And there is one moment in this that I wanted to spotlight, because it's a very generous moment that you don't often see from comics. It's when he's getting ready to talk about the childbirth stuff, and he stops, and he says... Carol Burnett once said that the pain of childbirth is like taking your bottom lip and pulling it backwards over your head. And he stops and he waits for that to get the big laugh. He uses somebody else's joke. He quotes her. He gets the big laugh. There's a moment while the audience is laughing at that, where he kind of looks at somebody and he smiles because he likes that joke so much. And it's a really generous moment. And if anything, it made me angrier because I don't want to hate Bill Cosby. And the fact that I hate him as violently as I do now is upsetting. I almost did not make it through the rewatch. I was telling myself, well, you don't have to. You've seen it. But I did kind of want to rewatch it. And I wanted to try and see if I could let go of any of it. And I can't. I really believe that's the last time I'm going to experience Bill Cosby's stand-up. And that breaks my
1: heart, man. Uh, The fact is that it's so distasteful and so current, we can't help but feel repulsed by it. So... Speaking of repulsion, Scott, I realized
0: something this week. I had never seen Space Hunter Adventures in the
1: Forbidden Zone. In two weeks, Columbia Pictures will present 3D as you've never seen it before. The first quality 3D film backed by a major studio. The first to use a new state-of-the-art 3D process. This is Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. It's the story of three unlikely heroes. Their destination, the Forbidden Zone. Their mission, save three stranded women. I like her. Their chances, one in a million. I'll take that bet. Columbia Pictures presents outer space as you've never seen it before the ultimate 3D experience be simple anymore space hunter adventures in the forbidden zone in 3d the first movie that puts you in outer space rated pg coming soon to a theater near you yeah well imagine like not only having the stones to just do a a really crappy 3d star wars ripoff but to release it the same month as part 3 I kind of like Lamont Johnson.
0: The last one we talked about, Catalani and Little Britches, I kind of liked. I like The Last American Hero. I think he's a pretty decent uh, filmmaker. So when I put this on and the opening credits came up and it was Ivan Reitman production of a Lamont Johnson film, I got to admit, I got really excited for about five minutes. And then the movie started happening.
1: Could this be like a scrappy little winner?
0: No no. no, no, it is a t- terrible movie. And it's Mad Max more than it's Star Wars.
1: Yeah, it is. It's Mad Max on another planet, and and but the marketing sure looks like Star Wars, and it's Peter Strauss as a hero named Wolf.
0: Not the right guy for this kind of movie.
1: No. And I like Peter Strauss. I mainly know him from television. I like him when he plays like a sleazy lawyer or, I'm sorry, a, a corporate lawyer who's quietly sleazy. That's Peter Strauss. Uh, and a young Molly Ringwald.
0: You can see exactly what they hired her to do is, hey, you're the spunky kid who's his sidekick. And in- They overuse her, but she is early in the film. She's kind of cool with the spunk. I like that. Scott, would you say that there are battle trucks in this movie? Battle truck. I saw at least one.
1: Battle truck. I think Ernie Hudson has a battle truck, technically. I think Andrea Marcovici also has a battle Battle truck. truck. Michael Ironside runs Battle Truck Empire of Space Hunter.
0: In this movie, if I'm not mistaken, he is playing Angelica Houston in Captain EO, correct?
1: That makes no sense to anybody Listen, Oh, actually, that's not true. <laughs> Drew, do you happen to remember the name of Michael Ironside's villain? No. And I saw it two days ago. Ready? Yeah. Overdog. <laughs> Overdog. One of, word. Of course
0: it is. Oh, it's so bad. It's so bad, and it's
1: Ernie Hudson is Ernie Hudson is one of the few shining lights in this movie.
0: It's a thirty eight hour movie, and here is the thing: Ivan Reitman was in the middle of trying to build his Canadian tax shelter empire with a bunch of guys who had done, you know, Canadian comedies with him, Meatballs, Lynn Bloom, and Dan Wein, and these guys. They're not good writers and they're not good movies. And the fact that he kept betting on the same people, I get it. But at the same time, there's a reason your Canadian tax shelter empire crumbled, Ivan. And it's because these guys had no flair for any of this stuff. And so you can ask them to do it and they can execute it. But you're going to get Space Hunter, this lifeless, hacky, Nobody's having any fun. There's nobody who worked on this movie who enjoyed any part of it. And, and and the worst part is the entire time they were making it, they had to know in the back of their head that right around the time this thing was being pooped onto movie screens in 3D, so would Return of the Jedi
1: from the Desert Fortress of Jabba the Hutt Jedi. to the Death Star of the Galactic Empire. To the forest city of the Ewoks. This is the climactic chapter in the Star Wars saga. Remember the Force. Rejoice in the triumph. Return of the Jedi. Rated PG. Now playing at a theater in your galaxy. For those of you who have never heard of this film, let me give you a little history lesson. 1977. (laughs) I don't think there is a way... Drew, is there an adjective to describe the anticipation that we had between Empire and Jedi? The difference was
0: after Star Wars, we didn't know there was going to be an Empire. So when we finally found out, it wasn't like we had three years. We walked out of Empire and we set our clocks. We were like, three years. We'll
1: see you back here. We need answers. Do you remember the exact theater you saw Return of the Jedi in? Oh, yeah. I do, too. And it was 1983, according to 80s all over. Okay, let's cut right through the fanboyism, though. Definitely the weakest of the original trilogy.
0: I believe this might be the first time that I walked out of a movie disappointed and unable to really pinpoint why.
1: Ah, interesting. That happened to me when I saw Caligula. Oh, yeah. Why? (laughs) Because I didn't know how my penis worked yet.
0: Um, it really confused me. My reaction confused me. And I had been as hyped as anybody. Could. Like I, I bought every Starlog. I read everything I could about it. I bought the Art of Portfolio, uh, the Ralph McQuarrie Portfolio thing. I was so excited. What was young Drew McWeeney's major issue with this movie? The experience itself got ruined for me because on the way to the theater, you know, the novelization came out like two weeks before the movie. And so on the way to the theater, I'm in the car. We're going to the Chattanooga Choo Choo, which is the 70 millimeter engagement. And I'm super, I'm pumped up. I've been waiting three years. And as we're going to get out of the car, I said, I can't wait to see who the other is. And my mom, who had read the novelization that I bought, said offhandedly, oh, it's a sister, Leia. Are you kidding? I walk into the theater melting down at 13 because she had just hamstrung me on the finish line. I could not get over it. And then something about the movie just didn't
1: land with me. Many, 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 many years later, Didn't you kind of do the exact same thing to me on Force Awakens?
0: Oh, I did. The difference being that uh, (laughs) I literally was telling
1: you how much I hate people who give spoilers and I spoiled. Yeah, no, what happened was Drew and I were talking about these shitheads on Facebook and Twitter who will sometimes, apropos of nothing, just spoil a movie in your thread and then go away. He thought that meant that I had already been spoiled for Force Awakens. So when he goes, oh, when blank kills blank and I went, ha, ha, ha. And he realized at that point. I didn't know, and I heard Drew literally shrink to 16 inches tall.
0: Yeah, that sound that you heard was the air yeah. vanishing out of the room as my asshole puckered out of fear when I realized what I'd done. Anyway, later it was I. I really find that the the problem with Jedi for me is that I think the things that work work so well that it almost unbalances the movie. I my favorite image in any Star Wars film remains a scene from this movie, and it's right after. Uh, Vader says, your sister, and Luke charges out of the darkness and goes apeshit on him. And as he drives him back across the the chamber and that John Williams score comes up and Luke is just swinging at him, that moment and that score, just talking about it right now, the hair on the arms goes up. It's my favorite Star Wars moment.
1: That's great. I think my biggest issue, uh, and, and here's a weird little sidebar, my entire life since 1983, I've remembered this one line from a People magazine, and they put Return of the Jedi on their 10 worst. And I quote, The Force peters out like an overused battery. And I remember thinking, that is so unfair. This is way too safe. That's my issue with Return of the Jedi. I got no problem with happy endings and silliness and and some stuff for the kids. What I have a problem with is that it was too safe. It is a virtual remake of Star Wars. And it almost felt like they said, All right, for part two, we went out and took some chances. Now for part three, we are going to play it as safe as humanly possible. And that even includes the established template that everybody loved from the first one. Well, I think movie.
0: Lucas, and this is the same thing that's true in the prequels, and it's it's George Lucas as a storyteller. I think George Lucas knows what the big move is that he wants to make in any given story, whether it's in the prequels, the idea of the, the villain hiding in plain sight and the Jedi's hubris bringing them down and Anakin's fall from grace. He knows what story he wants to tell. He is inelegant at telling them. That is his greatest failing, is not leaning on other writers to a more collaborative extent. I, I think the best things in Empire and the best things in Raiders and the best things in any of the movies that Lucas was involved in in that age come out of the moments where he had to collaborate. You see so many of the classic things that define Star Wars uh, for us are things where people reacted to George or where people came back to
1: George and gave him something. That's a very good point, and I t- it's very telling that the two Lucas productions that you cited – were both written by Lawrence Kasdan. I think Kasdan is as much the creator of the Han
0: Solo that we love as anybody. And my biggest problem later, the the one that I never have been able to solve, is that I don't think Jedi has any idea what to do with Han Solo. There has never been a better character wasted more egregiously by a major blockbuster.
1: The love triangle obviously dissolves due to sibling issues. And then it's just like, are Han and Leia going to hang out and fight together? That's it. Like, there's no story he for is, him at all. He
0: is essentially not in this film. And, okay, it's Luke's movie, and it clearly has become Luke's movie. And, honestly, all the Luke Vader stuff works for me. So, that is what, ultimately, I walked away from in 83, saying, well, that that worked. They landed the big punches they had to land over time, the problems and the seams and the things that I don't sit perfectly for me have grown. I think Return of the Jedi is a perfect example of what a Star Wars movie is for the most part. Empire is the anomaly. It's the outlier. We're not going to get Empire every time. Jedi is pretty much what we're going to get. I think if that's the bar that you set that Star Wars movies are fine. They're good. They have their ups and downs and things they do well and things they don't. Then you don't get so invested that your life becomes renaming your Twitter
1: account to I hope Ryan Johnson's penis falls off. Oh, don't even don't even get me started on that because even back in the day when we had our minor disappointments about these movies, we were smart enough if we had Twitter, we wouldn't go attacking the director. We'd be like, "Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I
0: think I think we just have a different age now." And I I think that there would have been just as many people who were losing their shit over choices made in Empire and choices made in Jedi. What? Now they're now they're brother and sister? What? Wait, Yoda dies and he doesn't do anything? He doesn't fight anybody? What? You would have heard the same kinds of insane... The Emperor comes out of nowhere. Who is he? He wasn't even in the first film. Now he's the main bad guy? Vader's basically a dog on a leash? What is this? Who's Lobot? I can imagine the exact same nonsense and... I would imagine that like with Jedi, like with the prequels, like with any Star Wars movie, time will eventually bring it to a place where it's generally well-liked and there's going to be things we have problems with. That's, that's Star Wars in general, man, and I think Jedi should have been the moment we realized it and stopped putting the weight of every hope and dream on one film franchise. Yeah,
1: I love it. It has a special place in my heart. In particular, the first half of Return of the Jedi, I love all of the stuff involving Jabba and the Sarlacc pit because it's not what we've seen in the other films. This is a new location, a new type of fight, a new type of enemy. I like this. And then it's like, oh, there's another Death Star. And even though it's still mostly entertaining for the rest, it's like, oh. I got it. Another Death Star. And I do get why people had a problem with that in Force Awakens. And yet it didn't bother me that much in Force Awakens. Um, It still has a lot of good moments. uh, and, And it's always fun to spend some time with these beloved characters. I did return.
0: All right. Well, listen, we have next month a Burt Reynolds comedy. We have one of the most controversial films of the 80s because of something that happened behind the scenes. We have two part twos and a part three. We have The Further Rise of Eddie Murphy. We have one of the bestie Martin movies nobody loves. And we have a James Bond movie, the first of two for this year, both of which suck. Guys, we will see you back here in two weeks for the very uneven, very weird June 1983.